going to be moving right along in Matthew this morning. If you want to find your places, we're going to be picking up in chapter 26, towards the end of chapter 26. Now, there are a few of you are are newer faces. If you haven't been with us for the last two years, I actually went back and looked at when we began this study in Matthew, and it was August 15th, I believe, 2021. So it's been almost two years that we've been going, you know, just verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Matthew. So this is actually our 73rd week of actually studying in Matthew. And we're in uh, chapter 26 out of 28. So we're getting near the end. I don't think we're going to make it quite to 100 sermons. I thought it'd be kind of cool to round it out, but we're not going to stretch it just for the sake of making 100. It's been nearly two years, but the end is in sight. Uh, In fact, Jesus has been talking about the end with his disciples. He's been talking about uh, his ministry coming to end. He's been talking about the end of the world and all of this cosmic stuff that's going to happen. And his imminent end of his earthly bodily ministry on earth is soon to come to an end. And that's what has been on his mind. As we saw last week, Mike brought us through the scene that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was just in agony, knowing the trials that he was about to face, and yet fully willing to go through them anyway. Jesus has been, he spent the better part of this night in prayer and wrestling with God, and he's in this tension of being, he's fully submitted to God's will, fully willing to go through this, while still freely expressing his own desires and fear and frustration and, or, or thoughts I don't want to say not necessarily that he was frustrated. Don't quote me on that. Uh, but he was, he was in agony. He was agonizing over this. I want to run through just a quick a review of the timeline leading up to this night. Because we've spent like, I don't know, two months or so just camped out in one week of Jesus' life. Uh, now the timeline, of course, varies a little bit. The details are a little different but across the four Gospels. So the exact chronology can be a matter of, of interpretation. But overall, we have a general, a pretty good sense of what happens throughout this week. We have Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday, right, which we, we studied even before even Easter this year. Uh, when Jesus arrives to Jerusalem, uh, he's, he comes in on a donkey, which is like, like a king from the Old Testament. The crowd welcomes him and lays palm branches down on the road. It's known as the triumphal entry. It's a great start to his time in, in Jerusalem. The mood shifts a little bit. The next day on Monday is when we see Jesus go to the temple and kick out all of the the merchants and money changers and people selling things in the temple, condemning them for turning a house of prayer into a den of robbers. So it kind of goes, the tone shifts a little bit there from praising him to him condemning people, kicking them out of the, the temple. Then on Tuesday, he stays in the temple. He's teaching some controversies come up. People are challenging him. His authority is being questioned. He teaches in parables. Uh, we call this the Olivet Discourse. There's a whole section of teaching here about the end times. We're not really, no one really says, records what happened on Wednesday, so it could be they just kind of took it easy and rested. We're not really sure. Thursday is where we come to where they're making preparations for the Passover, the Last Supper. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. And then late Thursday night into Friday morning is where we're going to find our passage today. And that's where into Friday morning, Jesus is betrayed by uh, by Judas, is arrested and taken to Caiaphas. 
and then denied by Peter, and then early in the morning, he's taken to Pil- Jesus is taken to Pilate, who's a Roman governor, and there he's ultimately sentenced to be crucified. All that happens from Thursday night to Friday morning. And then, of course, on Friday, you have the crucifixion and burial. On Saturday, it would have been the Sabbath day, so no one would have done anything, none of the Jews anyway. And then on Sunday, of course, you have the resurrection from the dead on the third day. And that's when the women who were followers of Jesus went and found the empty tomb. So I just want to give you this big picture overview to see where we are in this this timeline of the week. So we're going to focus in on those those few fateful evening and early morning hours um, into Friday morning. And even though it's a relatively short period of time in the scope of Jesus' life, I would argue that this is the most suspenseful and dramatic sequence of events in the story so far in Matthew. And it kind of reminds me of the narrative style of how Matthew started the book of Matthew. He kind of started by giving us snapshot pictures of several different people who would become key characters throughout the story of Jesus, including Jesus himself. We're going to see four scenes. Rapid fire. It's kind of like a montage when you're watching a movie and you see a series of scenes in quick succession. Sometimes they're from you know, different perspectives or from different times of the day, and it's kind of to condense what happens uh, over a long period of time into a shorter, easily digestible uh, bite size. And that's kind of what this is here. It's a montage of four quick scenes. We'll see first Jesus and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And then we see Peter and his interactions with the other bystanders. And then Judas, another disciple, with the Jewish leaders. And then finally back to Jesus before Pilate. So two interactions with Jesus, two interactions with his disciples, and I want to read the whole passage together so that we can get a good overview of it, and then we'll take a look at each scene one at a time. I'll just leave this outline up there for now. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation first as I read through it because it flows really well um, reading through narrative like this, and then when we go back to parse out little details, I might pull in some more literal translations. So let's read. Then the people, I'm sorry, I'm starting in verse uh, 57 of 26. The people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand, in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, You have said it. And in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the, high, in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his clothing to show his horror and said, Blasphemy! Why do we need other witnesses? You've all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face, beat him with their fists, and some slapped him, jeering, Prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who hit you that time? Meanwhile, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came over and said to him, You were one of those with Jesus, the Galilean. But Peter denied it in front of everyone. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Later, out by the gate, another servant girl noticed him and said to those standing around, This man, he was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it this time with an oath. I don't even know the man, he said. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, you must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. And suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping, bitterly. Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. And Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hung himself. The leading priests picked up the coins. It wouldn't be right to put this money in the temple treasury, they said. It was payment for murder. After some discussion, they decided to buy the potter's field and they made it into a cemetery for foreigners. That is why the field is still called the field of blood. And this fulfills the prophecy of Jeremiah that says they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price at which he was valued by the people of Israel, and purchased the potter's field as the Lord directed. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you king of the Jews? The governor asked him. And Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they are bringing against you? Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the, Jewish, that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. He's kind of giving him a chance here. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. 
Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? And the crowd shouted back, Barabbas! Pilate responded, and what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him! Why? Pilate demanded. Why? What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him! And Pilate saw he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water, washed his hands before the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. This responsibility is is yours. And all the people yelled back, We will take responsibility for his death. We and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus to be flogged with a whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. So I know that, that was a lot to read, but that's a lot to happen in one night. In one evening, we've gone from Jesus celebrating Passover with his disciples, all 12 of them, to being betrayed by one of them, arrested in the middle of the night, falsely accused, eventually being found innocent, and yet sentenced to death anyway. So I want us to go back first to that first scene uh, in verses 57 uh, through 68. Now in this first verse here, we've shifted focus. The disciples have all run away, right? We're, We're shifting back to Jesus. They've taken him to see Caiaphas. So who is this guy, Caiaphas? He served as the high priest of Jerusalem from around AD 18 to 36, uh, during the reign of Roman, uh, the Roman prefect Pilate. So it's this kind of historical record of when he was around. His full name was Joseph, the son of Caiaphas, and he was the son-in-law of Anas, who was actually the high priest before him. They were both very influential religious leaders in, Jer- in Jerusalem during Jesus' ministry. And actually, if we look at, I believe it's Luke or Mark that mentions it, after Jesus' arrest, he's taken to um, Anas first and then to Caiaphas. So they both actually see him uh, during the trial. They were both, both been considered members of, of the Sanhedrin. And historically, we can see from other writings that Caiaphas is regarded as, as significant, not only because of his involvement here with Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, but also as a representative of the collaboration between Jewish leadership and the Roman government at the time. So you can imagine he probably had a lot of friends and a lot of enemies. He was kind of that that person, that bridge between the Jews and and the Romans. Um, And he's described by Josephus as um, really being very harsh as, as a leader. But either way, he's a he's an important guy. He's influential in both Jewish and Roman spheres. So it's a pretty big deal that he's getting involved in this, particularly in the, in the middle of the night. So when they, when they bring him to Caiaphas, what are you, what's the scene, what's the setting that you're picturing? Where are they right now? They're not in the garden anymore, right? So where are they? They're in Jerusalem. They're not. So I, I was, and I asked my wife this too, I, what are you picturing? She's picturing the temple, right? Because you're picturing high priest Caiaphas. They must be in the temple. That's what I was picturing. And then I realized you read closer and you compare translations and notes. It's, oh, they brought him to Caiaphas' house. It's in the middle of the night. <laughs> this is his house. 
Um, if you look at these verses here, he, they led him to the courthouse of Caiaphas. Um, now, LSB doesn't have... Oh, yeah, there it is. The courtyard of the high priest. Um, so this, this house is, is the scene of Jesus' uh, first trial here. Now, we don't have a specific description of what the house was like, but just based on what other houses were like at the time and knowing that he wasn't a wealthy, influential person, he probably had a nice big house. Traditionally, there are some people who think this was the actual house, uh, whether or not it was. It probably looked something like this. Obviously, there's some modern architecture in there because some modern construction. But you can see how there's kind of a central open-air courtyard surrounded by other rooms around. And um, knowing that he was the high priest, he was, you know, as wealthy as he was, he probably had a nice large courtyard, plenty of space for all these people. He had the whole Sanhedrin gathered here. Um, this is a council of influential and respected leaders. So we should be picturing a pretty spacious area. Now this is kind of one corner of it, but this big outdoor area, uh, a little bit different from our own homes, right? Just as far as this was a normal place to kind of have events take place trials and proceedings, though not necessarily in the middle of the night. That is unusual. So what's the charge that they're bringing against Jesus? Initially, they're trying to use eyewitness accounts to make a case against Jesus using statements that he made about the temple, right? Someone brought up the fact that he said he would tear down the temple and then in three days raise it up. And we know as the reader that he was talking about his own body and how they were going to destroy him and how he would be raised. So they're misconstruing that, trying to um, find a way to, to charge him. But you notice it says they could not make any of the, those statements stick. And I would imagine that those testimonies had to, well, they were all false testimonies, right? So they had to have been embellished somehow. Um, none of them were consistent. And if you actually look at what the Sanhedrin were obligated to do during a trial was to interview witnesses separately, individually. I mean, we would do the same thing in law enforcement, right? To make sure their stories corroborate. So we can assume that's what they were trying to do and failing. Their stories weren't matching up um, until finally Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin are able to charge Jesus with what? Blasphemy. What is blasphemy? As far as the Sanhedrin is concerned, I think the only thing that matters about blasphemy is that it's punishable by death. Right? That's the goal here, is to kill this guy, and blasphemy is punishable by death. So if they can nail him on blasphemy, then they're, they're golden. Now, in the, if you look at the Webster's Dictionary uh, version of the word blasphemy, it's the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God, or the act of claiming the attributes of a deity, or more generally, irreverence towards something considered sacred or inviolable. So it's kind of vague. Uh, in the context of ancient Jewish law, specifically, blasphemy is typically understood as, again, an act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. Now, the specifics of what that means, we have one story in the Old Testament uh, where there's kind of an example given of this happening, and it still isn't very detailed. It still doesn't make a whole lot of sense, to be honest. However, the, the penalty is, according to Jewish law, death by stoning. But without an exact definition of what blasphemy really even means, it's not really clear. I, mean, I, I think we could do a whole sermon on what it truly means, and we're not going to get into that today. But a formal accusation of blasphemy was typically reserved for really grave uh, 
severe offenses against God. Again, it's the mandatory minimum sentence of death. So they're not going to usually accuse people of this unless it's something serious. But the Sanhedrin here are clearly manipulating the intention of this law for their own purposes. And Pilate can recognize that when he sees it. Now, Jesus was accused of blasphemy for his claims of divinity, kind of that that second definition in Webster, which I think is probably very actually influenced by the New Testament um, and the fact that they accused Jesus of blasphemy because of what he said. And we're going to get back to that, I think, in in a few minutes. But the problem is that Judea was under Roman rule, right? So the high priest, the Sanhedrin, with all their, their wealth and power, they didn't technically have the authority to kill Jesus. They're all in agreement that they want to kill him. They have something to, based on Jewish law to convict him and sentence him, but they don't have the authority to do that. So only someone appointed by Roman authority could do that, and that's why he's still going to have to be brought to the Roman governor, Pilate. But before we go there... Matthew takes us away from Jesus, whoosh, to the next scene, uh, back over to Peter. And last we heard of Peter, he was in Caiaphas' courtyard, right? And initially he was left outside, as we can learn from John. If you look at John chapter 18, chapter, uh, verse 15, he says, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Traditionally, most people think that to be John because it's in John's gospel. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So let's say this other disciple was John, whoever it was. Um, Apparently, these are the only two that were really allowed to be in this space with Jesus. And if it was John, you know, he had this, this in with the high priest, he was able to get in, and then he was able to get Peter inside the gate as well. And I just want to take a second to appreciate that, that extra effort that was taken for Peter to get inside, that Peter actually had a deep desire to know what was going to happen to Jesus, to be near him. Remember, this is the guy just last week we read, he jumped into action as soon as they were about to arrest Jesus and cut off someone's ear this is, this is a guy who wants to do something, and Jesus has told him not to, but he wants to be there to at least see what happens. And now as we continue reading, we're going to read again uh, for a second time about the intimate personal failings, probably what you would consider the worst failing of his life in this, this moment, um, one of the most intimate moments of weakness that he experiences. And just imagine... Now, you know, for thousands of years, millions of people reading the most vulnerable, weak moment of your whole life that you, you know, denied Christ. Like, that's, that's pretty vulnerable, and, and it's just here for us to all, you know, judge him on. So I just want to recognize the, the significance that Peter made it to the courtyard at all. You know, even in his fear and confusion, he wanted to be close to Jesus during this time. So let's read uh, in Matthew again, and I'm going to read this in the LSB And Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. Now notice every time Jesus is mentioned, it's either Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Galilean. They're specifying which Jesus, which is kind of interesting. That's going to come up again. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. 
When he'd gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later, the bystanders came up to Peter and said, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. He began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Note that that phrase, curse and swear, it implies an oath. Um, like, I swear on the life of my mother type of thing versus a profanity, which would be like a vulgar type of word. It's, it's, there's a little bit of a difference there. And immediately the rooster crowed and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and cried bitterly. So just as Jesus had predicted he would during their supper, Peter has succumbed really to his fear of being caught, and, and he chooses to disassociate from this man who's been accused of the most grave sin of blasphemy. Again, the rest of the disciples had already run away at this point, so at least he was there, but he did end up losing his nerve fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus made, and it's recorded in all four Gospels. So just, again, can you imagine, uh, and this is kind of silly, but imagine, like, Peter up there in heaven, like, oh, thanks, G, thanks, Matt, Mark, Luke, like, John, you really had to make sure everyone knew about that. One time I, I denied Jesus in the courtyard. It was that one time! But, you know, in, in all seriousness, it would have been in just this incredible emotional wave of realization washing over him uh, when he, he hears the rooster and that triggers the memory of Jesus predicting this happening. And as soon as he realizes this, he leaves Caiaphas's house and just weeps. He cries. And generally this would be, it's implied or inferred, I should say that these tears are tears of remorse, uh, maybe initially of, of shame and guilt, realizing what he did, and then leading into uh, repentance and forgiveness, and ultimately restoration. And this is all true. Uh, it's probably the most important thing, as Peter recognized his error. He repented. Um, that's clear. You look at the rest of the New Testament. Peter was restored. Jesus continue, goes on to make him the, a pillar of the church, right? He, he writes books of the New Testament, but I just want to think about the, the humanity of this moment, too. Not just the theology of, yeah, he denied Jesus and he repented, but he was just, I, I can imagine there were a lot of reasons that Peter was crying, besides just this repentance moment, and not that that's insignificant. But he's been, he's been out all night, and he did get a nap in the garden, but he's been out, he hasn't been home, he has... Uh, seen his, his best friend and mentor get betrayed, arrested, and condemned to death. And now he's just experienced his own, he's witnessed his own uh, weakness and failure. A humbling departure from what he would normally, his normal personality of just being bold and, and holding true to conviction. And he might have even had a sense of pride in that and who he was and then seeing, uh, kind of failing himself and in his eyes, possibly failing Jesus. It's a lot to process in one night. I mean, his own failures, his own just exhaustion, and then Jesus, his best friend and mentor, is going to die. Like, that's a lot. I would have nothing else but to cry as well. And there are times when there's really nothing more appropriate than to weep. Like Ecclesiastes says, there's a time to mourn. 
Bearing witness to our own sin is certainly an appropriate time to mourn our sin. But it is just that it's a time. It's a process of, uh, you know, if, if Peter did feel shame or guilt, if we ever feel shame and guilt over our sin, that could be a, a prick of conviction of Jesus revealing to us what we've done. But he does not want us to stay in a state of shame or of guilt. That's the whole reason Jesus did what he did. It's meant to bring us to confession, to repentance, and restoration. And that ultimately brings us closer to God and heals our relationships with him and with others. And it's important to note, too, if you might remember, if you were with us back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus made an interesting statement that you might link to this story. Of, in Matthew 10, he says, Whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. And obviously, Peter did deny Jesus, right? But then Jesus didn't deny Peter before the Father either. So we have to understand that when Jesus is talking about denying others, he's talking about people who consistently throughout their lives show or demonstrate a heart and a life that consistently rejects Jesus versus uh, moments of failure here and there that, that lead to repentance. And this takes us now into early Friday morning. We have two more, two more scenes to cover, but that was, I think, the biggest one. So the next two, I think, will go a little bit quicker. Again, Jesus would be absolutely exhausted at this point. Many of the others, anyone who's been up throughout this night would be exhausted. Uh, I think that's part of the, the humanity of this whole story that we tend to, at least I do, tend to kind of forget about just this, we read through it and it happens, but this was a grueling night um, for Jesus, for anyone, any of his family, his friends who knew anything about what was going on. Um, this would just be, just imagine what it would be like. I wouldn't get any sleep if I knew this was, this was happening. And this is all still leading up to Jesus has yet to go through the worst of it, right? The most physically and spiritually agonizing uh, day of his life is going to be um, on this Friday. So at the beginning of chapter 27, Matthew first reminds us Jesus is being handed over to Pilate. Um, We've gone from the scene with Peter, and now we're going to shift over to Judas. And like Peter, Judas is going to realize his wrongdoing, and initially he's going to try to take it back. I'm not going to read the whole whole scene again, but um, notice that... When, so for one thing, we do see the prophecy being fulfilled. <clears throat> uh, towards the end, it says, Jeremiah, the, what was spoken through Jeremiah, the prophet was fulfilled. They gave him, for the potter's field is the Lord directed me. So we have that, you know, if we ask, you know, why did this happen? That's one reason. We see the prophecy being fulfilled through this. Um, and it's similar, again, to the scene with Peter in that he's experiencing grief, right? The LSB says he experienced remorse, but why? Why? What was the remorse for? It wasn't that... Jesus had been caught, or that he realized what he'd done had been wrong. It's because he realized that Jesus was going to be condemned to death. And it seems really, if you compare this with what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7.10, I think I have this up here, yeah, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation 
without regret. But worldly grief produces death. So I think that's reiterating again that same concept of sort of conviction versus or conviction that brings about repentance versus shame that does, and guilt that is really just, uh, those, those are tools of, of the devil to um, burden your heart. If you have truly confessed and repented your sins to Jesus, there's no, um, no grief that needs to remain afterwards. So there's a difference between just regretting something. It didn't really work out the way, I don't know what Judas thought was going to happen, but it didn't work out the way he was expecting, and so he regretted it. Right? And there's a difference between that and truly being repentant, recognizing being sorry because of the wrong that was done, the damage that was done, versus being caught or it not working out the way you expected. And I don't think there's too much to be said about the leaders here in this, this scene, the, the Jewish leaders. All they care about is killing Jesus. They don't care about Judas. They don't care about the money. Um, they basically said, yeah, we don't care. Do whatever you want. Just, that's not our problem. That's your problem. And so Judas throws, just throws the money at them and goes and hangs himself in the field. And I just think it's so ironic what they do with the money. They don't, they're worried about making God upset by putting that blood money back into the treasury. Which, first of all, shows that they knew that Jesus was innocent and they were murdering him. Because <laughs> so they called it blood money. It's, this, is, this is money that was spent to murder a man. So we shouldn't put it in the temple We'll just go and buy a field with it and make it a cemetery and, and kill the Son of God in the meantime. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be fine. I, I just think that's so, so ironic. It's just such twisted priorities. Yeah, we're going to not keep the bounty money that we placed on this guy's head, but we're going to brutally kill him. Uh, just the, the priorities are so twisted. And it's so easy for us to look at that and say, oh, well, they were, that's so messed up, right? But I have to ask myself, too, how often have I let my own priorities and desires become inflated at the expense of losing sight of, of God's priorities and what I know he's called me to do and, and the things that really matter in life. It's easy for us to say, well, I would never have wanted to kill Jesus. I never would have mocked him. I never would have spat in his face. But how often have I figuratively spat in the face of my Savior when I don't extend his love and, and forgiveness and mercy to others. All right, so let's move on now. I told you that one would be quicker. We're going to move on to the fourth and final scene for this morning. And this takes us back to Jesus, finally. Now, we last left him talking to Caiaphas, moving to Pilate. Uh, Caiaphas is completely enraged. He wants Jesus to die but he doesn't have the authority to do it. So in chapter 27, verse 11, we'll find Jesus having been brought to Pilate. Verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, You yourself say it. Now he led with this question, I think, because he would have been considered the king of the Jews at the time. So this would have, if, if he answers affirmatively here, it's potentially going to cause some conflict. And Jesus said to him, you yourself say it. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Essentially, he's not really giving them an answer here. The Pilate, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? 
And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now I want to pause here uh, and talk about Barabbas. Because this is a figure who's mentioned in, all, again, all four of the, the Gospels. And according to these accounts, he was a, a prisoner. He ends up being freed by Pilate. Um, and a, apparently it was just part of a custom that they would do this during the Passover festival. And exactly what his crimes were vary slightly across accounts. According to Mark and Luke, he's described as having been involved in an actual rebellion, an uprising against Roman authorities. And in the resulting conflict even committed murder. So in, uh, and in John's gospel, he's just referred to as a criminal. So whether he was you know, a thief, a murderer, a ro- he's some kind of actual criminal, right? He's not innocent. Jesus is innocent. Uh, so Pilate was hoping they'd let Jesus go and you know, hold on to the actual guy who's committed crimes. Now, I mentioned... I was going to come back to the idea of Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus of Galilee. It's some early textual sources of Matthew actually give Barabbas the first name of Jesus or Yeshua, a Yeshua Barabbas, which is incredibly ironic. Yeshua or Jesus was a very common name. Uh, so it's not, it wouldn't be unusual for there to be multiple Jesuses. It was like a Josh is kind of a, what we call, it would sound like Josh to us, very common Uh, And then even the name Barabbas can be interpreted. It derives from the phrase son of the father. So really you have Jesus, son of the father, Barabbas, or Jesus, son of the father. You have these two Jesus, sons of the father, being presented to the people like a choice between the real Messiah or some parody of him. And whether or not he really did have that first name of Jesus or not, that's certainly the concept is is here of those two people being uh, presented in parallel And you could see it as representing a choice between Jesus and the kingdom of God and uh, peace and and everything that he has to offer or the other, the twisted version uh, that that is violent and um, uh, rebellious. And and they choose, of course, violence and rebellion. And Pilate, of course, is at least reluctant. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. He knows he's innocent. But these other people, the crowds are completely overcome with malice and hostility towards Jesus. It's honestly unsettling to think of how blinded they are by rage. They want nothing else in the world in this moment than to see this innocent man completely destroyed in front of them. What would it take to put us in that mindset? We know, yes, this was part of God's plan, but we also know that they were held accountable for their actions and their decisions. They demanded not just to have him locked up or sent away, but to literally see him emotionally, spiritually, physically shredded to pieces in front of them. That's what they wanted. And they said, we'll take responsibility. You know what? Let his blood be on our heads and our children's heads. Can you imagine saying that? This blind rage, this bloodlust that we see from the crowds, from the religious leaders, it's haunted me as I've studied through this this passage. It's an eerie reminder of the darkness 
to which human nature can sometimes turn so quickly. These were surely some of the same people praising him just a week earlier, less than a week. From an outsider perspective, it's easy for us to say, well, that's so irrational. How could they? And yes, it's, and yet it's a totally human tendency. It can happen to any of us if we're not focusing on Christ. I'll be honest, this really, I'm not going to leave you with a nice, tidy bow. This isn't really an application-based message. It's not very practical. If there's one thing I want us to walk away from this with, it would simply be just a better understanding and appreciation for what happened that night. Kind of the timeline, everything that they went through, and in the context of the rest of the week. So those those four scenes that uh, Matthew gives us right in a row, Jesus and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, Peter and the other onlookers, and then Judas and the Jewish leaders, and then finally Jesus and Pilate and their conversation. It kind of leaves us hanging early Friday morning before the rest, before the worst of it takes place. We know he's going to be, go be flogged, he mentions here, and then further on in Matthew he'll describe um, in, you know, the rest of the crucifixion. But just contemplate, leading up to that, the, the sense of dread, the suspense, the fear, the anxiety, the uncertainty throughout this, this montage of interactions. I can't imagine what was going through their minds. And yet in the midst of all of this chaos, this insanity, this tumultuous night that's just full of emotions, Jesus is this calm, steady beacon of peace and of love and humility through the whole thing. And remarkably, still will plead for forgiveness on behalf of all those who had a hand in his torture. Later on in the same day, Jesus, while bearing the full weight of our sin on the cross and suffering incomprehensible, agonizing pain, will still have nothing but love and forgiveness, not hatred or resentment for the rest of humanity. If that was true, even in that moment on the cross, then how much more confidence than, we, that, than can we have in the life and the hope and the eternal peace in Christ through the forgiveness and salvation that we have in him? And we don't, we don't have to wait in suspense during those three excruciating days while he was buried before finding out that indeed Jesus did rise again, as he said. He is alive and victorious over sin and death on our behalf. And while we may go through seasons of doubt or of wrestling with God, even even opposing God at times, we have to realize that none of that really phases him. I mean, it makes him sad because he wants us to be close to him and he wants us to be living abundant, full lives in him. But it's not like we can really do anything to mess God up. He's big enough to handle whatever we throw at him. He welcomes it. He can handle it. He invites us to pour our hearts out to him because he gets it. He lived it. The writer of Hebrews uh, writes in Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16, Therefore, since we have a great, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, 
but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the great high priest and king, has authority over the whole world, all of creation. And yet he's not some completely alien creature. He is human. And he's intimately familiar and empathetic to the human experience and human struggles. And most of all, the intense reality of sin and its consequences of suffering. I know my own needs, my own suffering in my life so far has, it just pales in comparison to anything uh, that Jesus experienced. And that's not necessarily the case for all humans. Some humans have extremely difficult lives. But regardless of how our own problems, they, at any given point, they may seem either not significant enough for God or they may seem just so overwhelming that we can't even imagine anything solving it. Nothing's too big for God to handle and nothing's too small for him to care. We can rest assured neither is ever the case with God. He wants us uh, to come to him. Father, we thank you today for, for who you are and for being willing to sacrifice so much so that we can have life and peace and hope in Christ and what you've done for us. Lord, as we contemplate those, those hours of um, trials and, and suffering, Thursday night and Friday morning and leading up to the crucifixion and everything that you went through and everything your disciples went through, and uh, I just pray that you'd help us learn from this so that we can uh, learn from Peter, learn from you, learn how to represent you and, and represent humility and kindness and forgiveness and peace even in the face of the greatest adversity. Help us to know when to uh, remain true to our convictions, to remain fearless and unashamed of your name, unashamed to be workers in your kingdom and representatives of you. Let us never fear to go uh, to those around us and, and boldly declare that you are, we do know you, regardless of of the consequences. Lord, let us just uh, bear in mind the, uh, the weight of what you've done for us. And let us just not, not become weighed down by it, but, but rejoice for it and rejoice for the freedom and uh, the, the peace that we have in you today.